Well, I told you guys I just got back from a trip to England. Whenever I go to England now, I've been gone so long, uh, I'm always kind of, it's like a freakish reminder that I used to live there, that I grew up there, the whole British culture. That used to be my culture because I feel so separated from it now. But of course, this week was interesting in particular because it's a big day in America here today on Sunday, and the reason is... Super Bowl. I, you know, my entire time in America, I've been fascinated by the Super Bowl because there is no sport in England, including soccer, in which people are that enthused about just getting around one game. But in America, I first came over here and people were like, oh, you're watching the Super Bowl, right? You're going to be into that. So before I even knew what American football was, I was a Super Bowl fan, mostly because I like the movie trailers, let's be honest, and the other amusing commercials that they throw in. But while I was thinking about sport this week and thinking about American sports, I'm thinking equally when I'm in England about British sports and about how much less interesting they are than American sports. If we think of the general British sport, right, the first one that obviously comes to mind is soccer, can you imagine Americans playing a game that goes for an hour and a half where they're totally okay with no one scoring any points at the end of that? Because that's what soccer is. It is an hour and a half of inevitably nothingness. So I am not a fan of soccer. I feel bad about that. People always ask me about that. If you are a soccer fan, you're deeply offended right now. But it's okay because soccer stinks and I've got a conviction about that. (laughs) Um, But there's other things about British sports that also perplex me. It's not just like the length and the fact that nothing happened. Take, for example, cricket. I've got a picture here of cricket. I have no idea how this game works at all. I know that there's a wicket that you're not supposed to, you're supposed to protect, not let it get knocked down, that you score points by going backwards and forwards, but I don't for the life of me understand why some cricket games last multiple days. And, and the, here's the other thing about cricket is, I think cricket is baseball if you wanted it to be as boring as possible. Like you want to remove all the fun of it and it's just, you know, it's too plain. But I have no idea how this game works. Here's another game that I'm not entirely sure how this works is rugby. Uh, uh, rugby is impressive because it's like American football without the pads and those guys will wail on each other. But did you know in rugby you can only pass the ball backwards? Why, what kind of rule is that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why you would only be able to, I, like I want to punch the guy who first suggested that, you know? Let's play a game and the rule is you can only pass behind you, but you have to score in front of you. Why? I don't know. I don't know. So rugby, it confuses me a little bit. But then croquet, croquet is another one. Whenever Jeannie and I go on summer vacations and we do like a rental, you know, like an Airbnb, they always have a croquet set in the garage, right, for you to play. I still have no idea how this game works. I just know that I like to hit the ball with the mallet, right? And I, every year I will come up with new rules to the croquet game so that me and my kids can somehow try and figure out how to have a game with it. But British sports are like that. There's a lot of sports in England where I'm just, I'm not quite sure of the rules. I don't really know what the purpose is. I don't really know why it's meant to be fun. But can you imagine traveling through your whole life not knowing the rules and the purpose and the aim of your life? You ever played a, a game like that where you didn't really know the rules of the game? You didn't know the purpose of the game? You didn't know what the uh, strategy was supposed to be or what you were trying to achieve and how just completely unpleasant that is? And yet the truth is a lot of us will walk through life not really understanding the purpose of it, the significance of it, God's intention for it. And so that's why the gospel of Genesis is so important for us. The good news of Genesis 
is that there is a structure, there is a purpose, there is a meaning to our lives and what God has called us to. You and I are invited to be a part of the game of life. And there are clear things that God has given us to understand what that is. To understand the purpose of it, the meaning of it. And we've been traveling through some of those already. But as we go further and further, and especially as we reach chapter 2 in Genesis, we're going to see that God has, has kind of outlaid foundations for what life is supposed to be. And it's good news for us because it gives you and I, who are wrestling to understand the meaning and the purpose of our lives, an anchor. It gives us guidelines. It gives us the rules to understand what we were made for, what God wants to do in us and through us. So we're going to read through chapter 2 today, the first little part of it. And we're going to look at this pattern, this design that God has for us, this purpose that God has for us in our lives. And Genesis 1 was kind of this mile-high view of creation. We go very quickly through the first six days, seven days of creation, and we see God doing spectacular things. But now in chapter 2, we're going to kind of zoom in to some of the specifics of that process. It changes a little bit. We're going to see precisely what did God do in creation of man and of the garden. How did he do that? And we're going to find out that as he rests on the seventh day, he's going to hand the work over now to you and I, to human beings. Genesis 2 is going to help us understand who we are and how to interpret our existence on earth. And he's going to do that by giving us three gifts. Three gifts in Genesis chapter 2 that I want to look at today. The first is the gift of life. Second is the gift of work. And lastly is the gift of boundaries. And all of these things come together, and I think for you and I this morning, as good news for what God wants to do in us and through us. So let me read with you chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. This is God's word to us today. Told that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. The mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Bashan. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, bdellium and onk stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let me pray for us as we pick this apart. Father, I thank you for this chance just to get into your word, to read through a passage of scripture that is beautiful, that is intricate, that is complicated, but that ultimately, most importantly, is good news for us. God, we need your spirit in this place this morning to understand it, to live it out, to take it in. So God, I pray that you breathe on us today by your spirit to understand and to take in your word. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's talk about the first gift that's in there, the gift of life. The gift of life. If we're talking about a game that's to be played, we're talking right now about the players. We're talking about the players in this gift of life. Now, I mentioned earlier that I don't like soccer. Uh, I'm not a big fan of it. For obvious reasons, it's just an hour and a half of nothingness. However, I do like to play soccer. Because if you play soccer, there's way more going on, right? You don't have to sit on the sidelines, be bored. You can get involved in there. People get excited about it. They get energetic about it. It's one of those weird things. I think that's true of a lot of sports is sometimes even if we're not, we don't want to be a spectator, we might be a participant because we like being involved in it. We want to be in the nitty-gritty of it, be a part of the competition of it. And here's what Genesis 2 presents us with. It presents us with a God who's not a spectator but who's a participant. He wants to be involved in life with us. He wants to walk beside us. And he gives us this incredibly intimate image of how God makes man. This is what he says in Genesis 2, verses 5 through 7. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So the first chapter of Genesis is this grand declaration of God of what he's creating, that he wants to create man in his own image. Then Genesis chapter two kind of hones in on that moment and tells it what it looked like. Because it is so much different than anything else God has ever done in the creation narrative. So far we've been told that as God creates the world, creates the universe, he speaks And it was so. He says, let there be light. He says, let the ground bring forth. But with man, what he does that is so different is God gets his hands dirty. He comes really, really close. He puts his hands into the dust of the ground. He breathes the breath of life. It's an incredibly beautiful picture. Shows us that God wants to be close in proximity with us. He doesn't want to be a spectator. He wants to be a participant. He wants to be right there. Now, just that alone, if we just stop and just take that in for a minute, that that's who God is, that when God created us, he was right there next to us, holding us like parents with a newborn child, being close right there. Theological word for this is imminence. You may not have heard that, but imminence is an important word because there's different ways that we can think about God. One is that he is transcendent. And that means that God is beyond all of creation. He's unlike anything else in creation. He doesn't need anything from us. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. However, God is not simply transcendent. He's also imminent. It's so important for us as followers of Jesus to believe. This isn't just some lofty theological idea. I would say that actually the idea of imminence is one of the most important things that you can understand as a Christian. Because it's this idea that God wants to be right next to you. That God wants to touch your life. That God wants to be intimate in the details of your life. He's glad to get close to you. Now, I talk about that this morning because I think some of us struggle with that notion. The notion of a God who wants to be close, get his hands dirty in the details of our life. Some of us, we think of God as this far off God. We have no problem with a transcendent God who's far off in the universe somewhere, kind of span everything into emotion like a great clockworker who's created this system that just ticks on its own. But we struggle with the idea that God wants to come close and touch us. And he wants to put his hands into our life. We think, ah, I'm I'm too messy for God. I'm too broken. I'm too messed up. I'm too confused. I'm too lost. I'm too whatever it is. But the truth is, God wants to be deeply involved in your life. 
Why do you think God takes so much more time with human beings than he does with anything else in creation? Why do you think that the, the author of Genesis describes God's creative act this way? I don't know if that was literally what it looked like, whether God scooped up dirt and his hands breathed on it, but I know that that image, that idea, God did that on purpose. He describes that way on purpose so that you understand that he is imminent, that he is present. And then the second thing that God does that is so important in this passage is that God, after he sculpted this man kind of like a, a clay worker, he breathes his life into him. He breathes the breath of life. And there's a lasting, eternal quality to us. This is something that is unique. Not, nothing else in creation gets the breath of life from God. There are other living creatures, but never is it described that God himself would breathe life into them. This is not just the fact that the oxygen that you and I are breathing right now is a gift from God. It's something deeper and more meaningful than that. It, it means that there is the spirit of God at work in us in some way and that all of us, every human being that's ever lived, is in some way eternal in nature. That's why C.S. Lewis says that you have never conversed with a mere mortal. It's immortals with who you dance with and talk with and converse with. Because there is something deeply unique about our nature as human beings, having had the breath of life breathed into us. Such a deeply intimate picture of God's love. So I want to do something here for a second as we pause, as we go through this. I want everybody to just stop for a moment. And I want you to breathe deeply. Just take in a deep breath. Let your lungs fill up. Feel that. Feel your chest move. I want you to understand that that's a gift of God to you. That as you are breathing, you are breathing in the very presence of God who is near and present in this room with us. It's not simply that you're taking in oxygen. You are living out the gift of life that God has given to you. It means a great deal to him. You mean a great deal to him. He's invested with nothing else in creation. Did he touch it? Did he breathe in it? But that's what he's done with you. We've already touched on parts of this a few weeks ago when we talked about the image of God, but it's always worth repeating. Every day of your life, you matter to God. You are significant to him. The way that he looks at you, thinks about you, you are not a random collection of personality traits and passions. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is deeply invested in your life. And I want you to consider what that means for you today. I want you to consider what it means that God has breathed the breath of life into you. How are you living in light of that? How are your days different by understanding that you have been given life by the God of the universe? Chances are you haven't thought much about that in this last week. I don't think about it regularly, but this week I was really challenged by it. As I'm reading this passage, thinking, the breath that fills my lungs, the days of my life that I live out are gifts from God. If that's true, then, and, and I'm going to live in light of them, that, that means I'm going to think about how I'm living my life. If life is not just something that happened by accident, but it was the intentional work of God, crafting it, breathing it, then that means I've got to think about how I'm living my life. How am I using the gift of life? There's a scene in the New Testament in the Gospel of John that kind of points back to Genesis 2. It's a moment where Jesus is with his disciples in John 20, and this is what he says to them. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You know that that scene right there, John wrote that scene on purpose 
echoing Genesis 2. Because he wanted the, the church, God's new creation, his new people to understand God's breathing life into you the same way that he did with Adam and Eve. He's creating you anew. Because he has purpose for you, he has significance for you, your life matters to him. John's doing it on purpose so that we can understand that God gave life to the man in the garden to fulfill a great purpose. And he breathes on us and he gives life to us to fulfill a great purpose in our lives too. He hasn't just given us the gift of life, he's given us the gift of great work. The gift of great work. I want you to think about uh, how we're coming into the spring because uh, we were all about to do something that none of us really enjoy doing, is mowing the lawn. I love the winter time because I don't even need to think about having grass. But Janine and I, we live right on the corner of our street, and so we've got the side we've got to take care of, and we've got the front we've got to take care of. And for some reason, every time we get to the spring, I get kind of a little bit depressed because I know I'm going to have to be spending two hours or so on a Saturday taking care of this grass so that we aren't embarrassed in front of the whole neighborhood. But I'll tell you one thing I do like about mowing the grass. Once I've done all of that work and I look and I have kind of that proud dad moment of looking back and enjoying all that freshly mowed lawn, that feels good, right? That feels good to have accomplished that hard work, even though if it was tiresome and it was annoying and it was tedious. When you complete work that you can see was meaningful and important, don't you get some kind of a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment and joy in seeing the product of that work? Maybe there's other things around your house that you can see, even though it can be tedious, it can be difficult, there is something in your heart and your soul that gets meaning from work. And I think it's because work is a gift to us from God. It's purposeful. This is what we're told in Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in verse 15, we jump ahead, we find out the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In the New American Standard Version, there's a a slightly different translation I think is helpful for us this morning. It says this in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it. So God crafts this man, he breathes his life into him, but he does it for a purpose. He gives him the gift of life so that he can also give him the gift of work. He places him in this garden to cultivate it, to work it. It's a really interesting moment seeing that there's a purpose to man. Think about this too. This is, this is a well before anything else has gone wrong. So most of us, we think, well, maybe work was because everything went wrong. Maybe originally Adam and Eve just kind of hung out, had fun all day, didn't do anything too hard. But actually we find out right before anything wrong is going to happen, God gives them the gift of work. Something important, something joyful, something wonderful that he's given to them to tend this garden, to take care of this garden. And it's such a great direction for this image bearer because now Adam and Eve, they get to image and reflect the same God who'd worked ahead of time. Because we've been seeing what God's been working on, we've been seeing how he's created, how he has cultivated, but now what God's going to do is he's going to turn it over to Adam and Eve. He's going to say, I've worked. I've created all of this, and now I'm inviting you as my image bearers to be like me, to do the same thing that I've done, to cultivate and to, to cause this garden to flourish. Amen. I love you, Kevin. It's always good. 
That's the meaning of work in our lives. It's to to cause things to flourish the same way that God caused things to flourish. It's to invest our effort and our time and our resources into things the same way that God did. You know what's interesting about this is in the Greco-Roman world, way back then, a lot of cultures back then, the Greeks and the Romans, they thought of manual labor and hard work as something that was dehumanizing and unpleasant. They kind of, that was for the lower classes of society. And the more uh, uninvolved your work was from your hands and, and kind of grunt work, the more noble and, and enlightened you were. So the highest people in Greek and Roman culture were politicians, it was uh, philosophers, people who didn't have to get down and dirty. And yet, what do we find in Genesis? A God who says, not only am I going to use my hands and get down and dirty, I invite all of mankind to join me in hard work, meaningful work. It's an invitation to join with God. And here's the point of this, is that mankind's purpose has always been to work to cause what God has created to flourish and increase. Work is a deeply important part of who we are, and a life without work is lacking. We feel the burden of it. When I first moved up here from uh, Texas with Janae after we'd had Jonathan, I was unemployed for about three months. That was one of the hardest three months of my whole life. To not have work, to not have something that I could apply myself to, to be involved in. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been in a season of life where you haven't had much work to do. Maybe you've struggled with unemployment or life has just been lacking in some meaningful work. And you feel the burden of that, don't you? You feel what it's like when you go to your job and you don't feel like you're giving meaningful, constructive work. It's because you were designed to create meaningful work, to participate in meaningful work. And I don't just mean professional jobs either. It's easy to relegate that to that sphere and just say, okay, what we're talking about with work is our jobs. But that's not true at all. In fact, that's such a reductive and small view of what God's really saying here. Here's how I want you to understand work. Every area of your life in which you expend effort and resources is a place of work. Every area of your life. And as such, every area of your life where you expend effort is a place where God desires for you to cultivate and bring flourishing and bring growth and fruitfulness. So think about this for a moment with me. Think about a few areas of your life where this is true, where God wants you to invest in meaningful work. First of all, your marriage. God has invited you, as he invited Adam, to bring flourishing in the garden of your marriage, to cultivate life there to serve and love your spouse, to work, to humble yourself and to lift someone else up, to care for them, to invest in it so that over the years, no matter what you go through together, your marriage increases in fruitfulness, in love for the Lord, in love for one another. Same is true about your parenting. Your work as a parent is to cause the garden of your children to flourish, to cultivate them, to care for them, to give them the knowledge of the Lord, to help them become confident and productive. Same is true about all of your relationships with people around you. The work that you put in your relationships is to cultivate them, to bring fruitfulness in them, to make them a place where people are comforted and encouraged and drawn towards the Lord. Same is true about your career. Some of you don't think that God has any opinion about your job whatsoever. There's just a place where you go to hang out from nine to five during the week. But the truth is, God is inviting you to cultivate his life, even in your professional career. To be the kind of person in your workplace that your work doesn't just make some extra dollars for the company, but you are cultivating the kingdom of God amongst your co-workers. 
That in that garden of your career that you are bringing fruitfulness of, of thoughtfulness and compassion and empathy and care. In fact, if you're a Christian, if you follow the Lord and you understand your purpose, your co-workers should be able to save you because you're a follower of Jesus. There's a person who brings life to this job. There's a person who brings life to this workplace. Do your co-workers say that about you? Could your co-workers say that you are the kind of person that even on the hard days of work, you bring life to the office? You bring life to that job? Same is true about our serving and giving in church. I mean, we could go on the list. There's so many areas in your life, and in fact, I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and consider all the areas of work in your life where God is inviting you to bring flourishing and fruitfulness, to cultivate and tend what He has given you. That's the invitation of God to all of us. The gift of work is to increase and to cultivate what God has done. Problem is, we don't really think about work this way. Don't think about our work as something that serves God and our neighbor. What we tend to do is we think about our job as just something we do to make some money, to make sure that we're okay. We think about our work as something that primarily benefits us. But here's what Tim Keller says about that. Tim Keller says, the question regarding our choice of work is no longer, what will make me the most money and give me the most status? The question must now be, how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greater service to other people, knowing what I do of God's will and of human need? How is your work fulfilling God's will and meeting human need? Knowing what you do about God, knowing that you are justified by grace, that you do not need work to make yourself meaningful or important, but actually that it is a gift that you have been invited into for the service of others and for the glory of God. How is that changing how you work? We work because God has invited us into the task of bringing bringing flourishing to his world. We are to see work as a way of service to God and our neighbor. And what's more is when we see work this way, when we understand that it's a gift to us, it becomes so much more meaningful. We actually find out in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God is using our work in this world to bring a form of fruitfulness That doesn't just impact us, doesn't just impact our neighbors, but it impacts eternity. That there is lasting value to every bit of work that God has invited you into. None of it is in vain. Sometimes we go to work and we think, man, what I'm doing just doesn't really matter at all. And maybe you're a doctor, maybe you're a lawyer, maybe you work in facilities work, maybe you work at a bank. But I want you to understand if you follow Christ, none of your work is in vain. No matter what your employer tells you, no matter what other co-workers tell you, you know that God has placed you in the place that you're at to bring flourishing and life. It matters. But to be the best cultivators that we can be, to really embrace this gift of work, we need to understand the boundaries. We need to understand that if we are going to be good gardeners, if we're going to be responsible to the one who has set this charge to us, What's the playing field look like? The gift of life is the players, and the gift of work is the goal. Then what's the boundaries? What's the rules of the game? So let's talk about the gift of boundaries. Genesis 2, 
16 and 17, we read about a tree that captivates our attention. It says in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I read an article this week called Sins of the Father, and it's talking about Father God. It says this, if he didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from it, then why did he put it in Eden in the first place? It boggles the mind. Why create such a dangerous and yet alluring object and place it right in the middle of paradise, unprotected, where it could be readily be eaten from? You ever thought about that? You ever read about this tree and wondered, why would he do this? God creates boundaries because he loves us. He creates boundaries so that we can flourish. That's why that tree was there. Now, I don't know all the details about it. I don't think any of us are ever going to really understand the full significance of that tree. But I do want us to understand the morning that the point of Genesis 2 message in God's command is for our benefit. It's for our good. It's good news. I'll tell you a little bit why. God gives boundaries as kindness to us to protect us from things that can cause us great harm. Think boundaries with your kids. Think about the different things that you say no to your kids about. With my kids, right, they want to run out in the street to get the basketball back, and what do I do when they do that? I say, no, you can't do that. You can't play in the street because I love them, because I care for them, because I know that there are places they can go, there are things they can do that are harmful for them. And sometimes we run right past that. We forget that we are limited, created beings and that God is unlimited. So there are things in this life that he has created that if we don't use them responsibly, we don't think about them carefully, can be harmful to us. Not because God's not good, but because we're not God. Think about this. Did God hide any details about this tree from them? We're going to find out in Genesis 3 that there's a certain serpent that wants the human beings to believe that God's got ulterior motives. But is there anything about this tree that he hides from them? Is he not entirely plain with them from the beginning? This is what this is. It's dangerous. Don't go near it. Is he not being transparent with them? And furthermore, does God owe them transparency? He does it because he loves them, because he cares about them, because he's close to them, he's intimate with them, and he's sharing exactly what's going on. He wants to be clear with them. Why would he tell them about this if it's not out of love for them? And furthermore, he's the thing that struck me more this week. Think about what he's prohibiting, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's he giving them? Every other tree, including the tree of life. Every other tree in the garden. So is it even close in terms of what God's prohibiting versus what God's giving them? No. God is insanely generous. He gives them this entire world that didn't belong to them. They didn't make it, but he gives He gives nearly all of it to them. He says there's one tree. But isn't it human nature that we fixate ourselves on the one thing that he says no to? When God is giving us so much more. And I want you to understand the real point there. God's boundaries are always protective. They're not restrictive. Always protective and not restrictive. God is always offering more than he withholds. Always offering more. And when he withholds it, it's out of deep love for us and care for us. The question is, will we trust in his generosity? Will we trust in his boundaries and his care for us and his counsel? Will we believe his words and join with David in Psalm 16 who says this in verse 6, 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David is saying the boundary lines for me are in good places. God has given me so much more than he's ever withheld from me. God is so generous. He's so good. Now, no doubt this morning we're tempted to ask, well, what's, what are the boundaries? What's the lines? I want to know where I can stay and I don't want to cross them. But even asking that question, I want to encourage you this morning to consider it's the wrong question. When you have fixated on, I want to know the lines, I want to know exactly what I can do and what I can't do, it's betraying that there's something going on inside of your heart that says you care far more about your own freedom than you do about God's love for you. When we are so fixated on what, what am I allowed to do, what can I get away with, you're pushing God back there and saying, I, I don't really believe that you love me and care for me. The better question for us this morning is to think about our hearts, think about more than merely disobeying, and think about this. This is what uh, a commentator, Tim Savage, says about this passage. He says, at a deeper level, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil provides an opportunity to express delight with God and the life he gives. By standing over against the other trees of the garden, it presents an alternative path to satisfaction. And by refusing its fruit, human beings can affirm their entire satisfaction with God. For them, God is enough. In him, they discover the fullness of life. That's the real boundary, is God himself. Is he enough? Is he enough for you? Is he enough when your life is difficult and it's painful and it's confusing? Or do you find yourself needing to indulge yourself in behaviors and attitudes that you know are harmful to yourself and others? Is he enough for you when marriage is challenging? Or do you find your eyes wandering to look at someone you imagine to be more fulfilling or accommodating? Is he enough for you when culture offers you alternatives to joy? Or do you find yourself loving God conditionally only when he's willing to let you indulge in the same kind of choices as the rest of the world? Is he enough for you when you feel deeply desirous of things that he said are harmful to you? Boundaries don't just protect us. Boundaries don't just show us God's kindness. They show the rest of the world who he really is. It shows the rest of the world what matters most to us. God. Boundaries proclaim to the world that you find your joy not in self-indulgence or autonomy, but in committed relationship to the God who created you. Boundaries proclaim that your trust is in the one whose image in whom you are made. And the opposite is true too. A lack of boundaries shows that God just isn't important. It shows you that your true God is your own appetites, your own desires, your own feelings and emotions. And we're going to find out that our first parents' ultimate problem was that their God was their bellies, as Paul says that they were so fixated on what they wanted. They didn't see everything that God had given them. In a couple of passages when we get to that, I want you to, to remember this week and think about the generosity of God and think about the tragedy that they didn't see God's boundaries as something that was love for them. They didn't see the gift of it. All of us are like our first parents. We struggle with the mindset 
that God wants to withhold good from us. That's just not true. In fact, God wants to protect our good. But we can yet praise God because in the whispers of Genesis 2, in this story, we see a picture of the hope that we have. Even as our hearts long to travel over the boundaries, we hear the whispers of a God who's far different than us. We hear the whispers of a God who puts his hands in the dirt and reforms us and breathes life into us. The good news of one who cultivates us, taking the raw material of who we are and by his work causes us to flourish and grow. The good news of the one who takes joy in that work, who delights to tend us and to cultivate us. And good news of the one who lays out boundary lines in pleasant places by providing in himself everything that we need. He gives us the boundary line of his son. It tells us in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's why Simon Peter preaches in Acts the good news that there is salvation in no one else, but there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the boundary line for a fruitful and meaningful life. He is the true worker in the garden, the real Adam who breathes life into us and cultivates us. And the aim of this game of life, if we want to understand the rules, if we want to understand why we are here, what God wants to do in us, it's to teach us to know him, the son who loves us. To walk with him, to trust him, to cultivate what he's given us, that our joy may flourish. And I urge you this morning, as we do every week, to come to him and know him. To know the God who wants to give you the gift of life, the gift of work, the gift of boundaries. Who wants to protect your joy and care for you. Get his hands dirty in the details of your life and provide for you. And if you don't know him, if you don't know how to do that, if this morning as we talk about that, you are longing in your heart to know him and walk with him and experience this great God, I'd love to talk to you and many people in this room would love to talk to you about this great God who's loved us so well. And if you do know him, then do not leave this place this morning without reminding yourself how good he is, how worth it he is, how he wants to protect your joy and cultivate you and invite you into the work that he's doing. Choose him again today and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the good news of Genesis that tells us who you are and what you desire for us. Praise God that you are a God who protects our joy. Praise God that you are a God who invites us to work with you, to cultivate your creation, to bring flourishing and life and joy into this world. Praise God that even now as we take breaths in, we are reminded that you are the God who has breathed life into us. We cannot even begin to capture this morning how good you are how great the good you desire for us. Help us to be your servants. Help us to come to you and to trust in your words, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. I hope it's been an encouragement to your heart of the God who loves you, who sees you, 
supposed to be at work in your life. If there's any way we can pray for you, I just want to remind you, we want to take time here at the end of church. We want to support and encourage one another. You can always come forward. We have people who will pray with you and care for you. And for everybody else, stick around for fellowship. Again, church is so much more than just the message and the music. It's us being together as the people of God, loving one another. One last reminder for the guys as well. If you're a man here, I would love for you to come forward here just for five minutes. We just want to get an idea of those that want to come and join us for our breakfast in a few weeks. Uh, So again, you can come forward. We're going to get a few names. But please be praying for that. Join us for that. But now this morning, let me offer you a benediction. Would you pray this with me? May we go in the name of the God who has breathed his life into us, who has invited us to cultivate and to work his world, and who has placed the boundary lines in pleasant places because of his great love for us. May we trust him. May we follow him all the days of our life. In the name of Jesus that we go. Amen.